This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the I'll Read What She's Reading edition. I'm Avi Feigold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal, and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, Jewish romance novels. Yes, they're a thing. We discuss the genre with Tamar Fox and a controversial conversion in the Jewish comedy world. We check in with cantor and comedian Aurel Goslin to see what's up. But first, our interview with Tamar Fox, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Not only is November Jewish Book Month, but it is also a peak cuffing season. What, pray tell, is cuffing season? Well, to quote an article from the uh, Relationship Bible of all Bibles, Cosmopolitan, cuffing season is when people start to want to be tied down in a serious relationship, says licensed clinical psychologist Ara Bushman. The cold weather and lack of outdoors and sunshine causes singles to become lonely and desperate. So apparently this is a thing, and what better way to get in the mood than with romance novels? Not just any, though. Jewish romance novels, of course. If you're keeping score at home, that is two things I had no idea about in just the intro to this segment. Now, as good as Song of Songs was, the genre of Jewish romance novels is growing every year, spanning from rabbis to regency. To walk us through this is the fabulous Tamar Fox. Tamar is an author and editor and is here to help us understand this whole genre, the plots, what these books do well, what they don't, and why it matters. Tamar, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm sad to say, but my first reaction when I heard about this genre was derision, like open derision. But then I paused and I thought about how every other genre has a Jewish subset, right? Not just for books, right? There's Jewish heavy metal, Jewish video games, Jewish graphic novels. So why not Jewish romance? So yesterday I read a couple of them. Um, we'll get into those soon enough. But I was wondering if you can start by breaking down for us Jewish romance and how it maps onto the larger, larger three, two, one Jewish romance and how it maps onto the larger genre of romance fiction in general. So, just taking a little bit of a step back, romance is an enormous industry. It's an enormous genre. Um, romance novels famously basically pay for all of publishing. Um, Romance readers read uh, frequently like one or two books a week and buy them the most. And so the money that romance generates is really the money that like sustains much of the publishing industry. It is a very, very big piece of publishing and uh, it has many, 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 many subgenres um, and things going on inside of it. And um an example that I am like super not into, but is very uh, popular is paranormal romance. So it's like like Twilight. Um, well, more than Twilight, it's like he's sometimes a panther and sometimes like a really hot guy, and she's learning to come into her magical self or 
whatever. Paranormal is not my thing, but just like there's so many subgenres within romance, there is, of course, uh, a, a Jewish subgenre. And I would say, actually, there are romances with Jewish characters. There's, for the most, there's not really a lot of um, like Judaism as the focus of the novel. And why do you think it took us so long to get to a point where people are writing Jewish romance novels? Well, I think there's a few things. One is that Christian hegemony is a real thing, and there are well, fewer people who are really invested in uh, Jewish love than there are people who are invested in uh, love or like Christmas and love. <laughs> like most of most romances, putting Christian fiction aside, are really not about um the the religion of the people or their kind of like deep beliefs what romances are about like people uh overcoming things and their like internal lives coming together and that's kind of what i like about it is that like it's it's about people really dealing with things that people really deal with in life like a lot of them are about family stress and family trauma. Um, and a lot of them are about kind of like the circumstances that might hold you back in some way and finding someone who kind of like sees and appreciates you for who you really are. Uh, someone who is willing to kind of help advocate for you in a tough family situation. Those are like beautiful, hard things that are often not um, explored in a lot of regular fiction. And they're not explored in a way that kind of like leaves you in a happy place. They're often explored in fiction in ways that are very dark. And, um, you know, the, the defining characteristic of a romance novel is that it has a happy ever after at the end. Tamara, I, I'm curious about if you know at all, who's, who's reading them? Is it primarily Jewish audiences, Jewish readers or non-Jews? And, and if so, do you find that maybe creepy or fetishistic at all? I don't think non-Jews are reading them for the most part. Like, I, I just think there's not a big audience of of non-Jews who are really invested in Jewish Jewish love. Uh, I'm sure there are some creepy people out there for whom that's a thing, but you really don't hear people talking about it in that way. I really think this is a market that is developing because there are a lot of Jews who are actually looking for representation. I would say that like Jewish representation in these books is still pretty uh minimal like it's very like cultural jewish there's really not a ton of people culturally jewish it's not a ton of people um in these books who for whom judaism is like an important part of their daily life well you bring up an interesting point uh, just to circle back to the comment that you made before is that these books are not usually so much about what they believe in it's more about the love which made me think of the question well what makes a romance novel jewish we taught you mentioned before everything from philip roth to like a modern day jewish writer so i mean we've had this conversation in many other ways not just about romance novels but does jewish mean the religious aspect is mean the spiritual aspect, the cultural aspect. Um, and, and so if that is the genre and people aren't interested in hearing like a, a deep struggle with, with God, um, do we need, do we need it? Or do you, or do you wish that there was just more diversity within the genre? Well, I would like there to be, 
I I'm I kind of rankle against like Judaism as exclusively like bagels and Hanukkah. Like that's that I recognize that that is like some Amen. people's Jewish experience and like that's totally fine, but to me it's like that is a very tiny bit of what it means for me to be Jewish. And so I would like to see more different kinds of Jewish practice um, in all kinds of cultural representations, like not just in romances, but like in movies, like it feels like in movies, there's like bagels and Hanukkah Jews. And then there's like Hasidim and like, there's nothing in between. And that's very, that's the case in so, so many Mm -hmm. um, kind of portrayals of Judaism and, as someone who is like very far from both of those um, edges of, of Jewish life, that's just like, I would like to be, I would like to see other options. Could, could you paint a picture of what your ideal Jewish romance novel would be? Like, what's the plot? I personally like an extremely spicy um, romance novel. I would like a lot of sex. Um, sometimes in like romance novel communities, there's a lot of discussion of like, do they bang? Do they not bang? I want them to bang. So um, that is that would be important to me. But I definitely like I would like to hear people who like I want to hear about it to fill and date. I want to hear about people who are like going to shul but also hooking up like that is very much a world that i lived in and so i would and and it's like a world that i know a lot of people that live in like it's not like i felt like i was one of the few i was not and so like that seems like a community that could be um in a romance novel i will say there are a couple recently that have come out that are getting much closer to like what I'm interested in. So one of them is the intimacy experience experiment by Rosie Dannon, which is about um, a rabbi and a porn star. And uh, it's good. It's fun. Uh, They do bang. It is not the, the rabbi. I didn't feel like they really actually sold the Judaism very well in that book. Like the, the porn star, frankly, is a little bit more well-realized than the rabbi. Um, is it written by a Jewish author? Uh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. And um, the rabbi is uh, dealing with like shul politics, which I also did love because that is like such a real part of Jewish life. Um, so, so yeah, that is a good one. It's still like, even though there's a rabbi and it is like ostensibly about a like program that the shul is putting on, it didn't feel like Judaism was actually that important to either of the characters, but it was much closer to what I am into and it like what my life is like um, that I appreciated that. Um, And the other one that I really loved recently is the rabbi who prayed with fire by Rachel Sharona Lewis um, this is actually like kind of a um, a mystery, kind of a romance. Um, it's a queer woman rabbi, and um, it's really fun. Um, they don't really bang in it, so that is my uh, cr- critique. Um, but it, it's it's really fun, um, and it's going to be a series, as far as I know. So I believe there is going to 
be more in that in that series. Maybe there will be banging in the next one. So when we started this, uh, as I said, I didn't know anything about this until uh, honestly just a couple days ago. Yesterday, uh, in order to be well prepared for this uh, segment, uh, I read two books. And I just, you know, first of all, just picking them, I started getting a sense of where I thought that the world was. And I was like, oh, a lot of these are self-published. And that means that probably there are people who are writing what they want to be reading um, and are, you know, fans of the genre and are saying, this is something that I like. Um, but then as I started reading, you know, getting more into these books, and I'll get into what they are in a second, um, I really got the sense that it was much more along the lines of the uh, thing that we've discussed here in the past, which is the genre of the Hallmark Hanukkah movie, where it's mm -hmm. like, well, there must be a market for Jewish romance novels, so let me write one because I have some limited Jewish experience, and I'll be able to take a standard cookie-cutter plot of something Jewish, uh, of, of a romance novel, and add a sprinkling of Jewish stuff on top of it, and it will become something significantly like more Jewish, and people will want to buy it, uh, will go for it. Um, I read uh, the uh, this novella um, called, oh, I'm sorry, Promised Land, which was basically like Hamilton meets Yentl, I guess you could say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've read that one or not. Um, that was my sense. It was like, oh, let's take a story. Let's put it in the American Revolution, but let's put the characters as Jewish and make one of them actually a soldier. Um, and, you know, romance will ensue and, and all that. Um, and then I read this book, uh, Hot Rabbi, because, of course, I had to. <laughs> Right. David would have been mm -hmm. very mad at me had I not read Hot Rabbi. Um, and you wanted to read about yourself, Avi, about you as the hot rabbi. I, I said nothing about that. And I have a I'm, I'm also married to a rabbi. So so we don't know who's hot rabbi in this situation. I know many hot rabbis. Let's not go there. I'm not I'm just speaking in generalities. Um, and I just it was it was clearly it was just a modern you know, story. And it was like, okay, great. There's a guy with a career. There's a woman with her career and they come together and there's a lot of banging and he happens to be a rabbi. And I just found that there were so many howlers and there were so many things that like just a tiny bit of research would have like gone so much further. And it was just, uh, but I could see the appeal for people who have a little bit of that, you know, desire to see the things that they care about, um, namely seeing love uh, in fiction and fictionalized accounts of relationships and um, and how they go well, because there's always a happy, happy ending at the, at the end. And let's put in this layer of Jewish stuff on top of it, um, just to give people the sense that these stories are relatable. And I wonder if maybe that is the crux of the issue here is that, as you said, it's cookie cutter, like the Hallmark Hanukkah movie. Like I'm looking here at the description of a book called The Matzah Ball, which <laughs> seems to be about a girl who uh, loves Christmas, but she's Jewish. And like the whole thing just reads as, like Avi just said, it's a trope and they're trying to bring Jewishness into it to fill a category that already exists. But maybe we need to be redefining Jewish romance novels and making them more Jewish as opposed to Jewish characters inhabiting a world that is inherently not Jewish. Well, okay, two things. One is I think that the the cookie cutter is the point. Like people choose romance novels because they're like I want a an enemies to lovers trope or I want a um New single you know. dad comes to town and falls in love with right. the or I want free spirit. Just one bed. That's a very common one. Like there's all there's a million tropes, and people will be like, 
that I would like a book that has this in it. And then they will just ask their friends, have you read an enemies to lovers? And somebody will be like, yes, here's this one. There we go. And I think that that, um, there's a lot of people who will just choose romances that way. And like a Jewish romance is people are looking for a Jewish romance that like is compatible with their Jewish life. And for lots of people, especially people for whom a, a Hallmark movie, a Hallmark Christmas movie is like a comfort food for them. If they're not Christian, they're like, yes, I do want this, but I would like it to reflect my experience. And my experience might be, basically this Christmas movie, but with a Hanukkah and some latkes in it, that's it. And like, that's fine. If that's what people want, like, I think that appeals to a lot of people. There just isn't, I don't think it's being self-published. Like, I just think there isn't basically a market of uh, Jewish romances that reflect like my lived experience, just because honestly, there are not that many people um, who are looking for that. I mean, there were enough that I had like a fun twenties, but there's probably not enough that it would make sense for a publishing house to, to publish a book and wait for a lot of people to buy it. The point of a romance book is like two people meet, they struggle to figure out how they can be together. And then in the end they are together um, and happy romance readers get real annoyed when they encounter a book that is marketed as a romance. And then it actually doesn't fit the mold. Like, if you want, it's like if you go out for pizza and you're, we are like at a pizza restaurant and then somebody brings you something and it's actually pizza with like tomato sauce and maybe a like tiny bit of cheese on it. You're like, this might be good, but it isn't pizza. And that's what I thought I was getting. So I don't want it. And that's basically how romance readers feel about this. I feel like you're not going to get a lot of romance readers who are like, what I want is a Jewish romance that doesn't have a happy ending. Like that is just a lot of books about Jewish people. <laughs> you would have riots. If <laughs> so upset. Well, I was just saying, Avi, you brought up, uh, you brought up the promised land and tomorrow I was wondering, cause I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know this book at all. Could you just summarize it for us? So we get a sense of what are these Jewish themes that are maybe running through that are like the, the light tomato sauce of these stories. Well, the, the Promised Land, um, I recommended it. I read this book recently and I loved it. It is absolutely bonkers and it is not particularly similar to uh, a lot of other Jewish romances, but I'm going to give you a brief Was it not enough if I went amazing. and said, right, Yentl meets like Mulan meets Hamilton? I mean, <laughs> we <laughs> need more, Avi. Yeah, more. no, you did not okay, do okay, it hold on a second. justice. If, if I said to you, David, Yentl meets Mulan meets Hamilton, what would you tell me the story is? I would say, what the heck is happening? <laughs> I... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. It is about what, a, what AI robot put this together. <laughs> it is about a woman who is married to a man and living in New York right before the Revolutionary War. He is a loyalist. She is not a loyalist. And uh, when the British come to New York, he sends her and her mother-in-law to Philadelphia to be safe. She doesn't get along with her mother-in-law. They decide to fake her death so she can get out of this marriage. She then dresses as a man and joins the Revolutionary Army. She's living, living as a soldier in the Revolutionary Army with a bunch of other Jewish soldiers. 
And one day she sees her husband walking around and she knows that he's a loyalist. So she immediately is like, we have a spy. And she grabs him. He recognizes her and is like shocked. He says to her, like, I sat Shiva for you. Your yard site was like just last week. And she was like, well, I'm not dead. Um, (laughs) And then, and this is called a second chance romance because they're already married. So we're not hearing about them like meeting and getting, falling in love for the first time. We're actually hearing them kind of like come back together after a kind of, in this case, emotional and physical separation. And she is struggling with like, first of all, do we, are our values aligned? Like, is he still a loyalist? And she's also like, well, he could out me as actually a woman. There's all kinds of like revolutionary war stuff happening around them. And also he is actually pretty religious and she is not anymore. And so she's trying to figure out how to kind of like square that. And, um, I love this book because it did actually have like people navigating like, well, we're not exactly on the same page about religious issues. That's like so much of Jewish relationships is like, we're not exactly aligned in our practice. So how are we going to live together? Like which, how are we going to find the middle ground? Um, And I just thought that was really fun and interesting. And it does have like literally scenes with Alexander Hamilton in it, which is also fun. Am I right in assuming that a lot of these romance novels really do come from the female perspective, right? As opposed to the other Jewish fiction of Philip Roth, where it's very male focused and very male centric. These romance novels are really coming from women empowerment. And and is that like a through line throughout a lot of these book stories? Uh, I'm not sure women in, women's empowerment is the phrase I would use, but it is largely by and for women. Um and I mean, there are lots of men who are into romance, but um, the like vast majority of readers um, of the romance genre in general um, are women. I want to shout out one more book that I think is a great example of like a, a different way that Jews can be portrayed in romance novels. Um, it is called Band Sinister. It's by a British author named K.J. Charles. It is a queer romance. Um, it is about two men, and one of them is a, um, like a, I don't know, not a duke, maybe a viscount or something. A minor, um, and the other a minor one is, you know, in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> right. A, a, a rich, fancy person. And um, the other one is a, like, country bumpkin. Um, and through various methods, they come to fall in love. Um, But the rich guy actually has like a whole crew of guys that he uh, has relationships with and has these kind of like orgy is too strong of a word, but parties. Um, And one of them is Jewish and through various methods one uh the jewish guy ends up falling in love with the sister of the country bumpkin and by the end of the book they get engaged and this is a historical so it takes place probably 150 ish years ago and um the jewish guy is farty and a doctor and he falls in love with this woman while he's taking care of her because she's broken her hip and uh he said they want to be together but he's like, listen, 
you would have to be Jewish in order for us to get married. And she's like, that's fine. The church here is so whack anyways. And so she becomes Jewish. Her words exactly for that time. (laughs) Exactly. Um, She writes a gothic romance in the book. It's so good. It's absolutely wonderful. But what I really appreciated about it is that like he is invested in his Jewish life He's not like totally shut off from non-Jews. He's like actually very active in a circle of people with whom others are not Jewish, but he's invested in it enough that he's like, listen, we can be in love, but actually I can't be with you if you're not going to join my community. And that's a very common thing that we see in the world around us now. And so seeing it happen here was um, really interesting and beautiful to me. And that this woman was like, you know, some people are like, I don't know, this is a, a really hard decision for me to make. And some people are like, oh, that's fine. I have no attachment to the religion that I grew up with. Um, and so I just really appreciated reading this. It's not the the main romance in the book is between these two men. This is like a peripheral romance, but it is great. And um, I really love this writer, KJ Charles. So I highly recommend it. If you're looking to like see some uh, a more interesting portrayal of, of Judaism, in a romance, that's where I would send you. Something more th- more three-dimensional than Hot Rabbi. <laughs> I haven't read Hot Rabbi, but I do know many Hot Rabbis. I, I, I kind of want to go back to the comment that you made before uh, you switched gears to talking about this last book about not exactly being female empowerment. Can you expand on that? Well, I think that uh, there can be a lot of kind of retrograde sensibilities in romances. A lot of, I mean... Ultimately, the idea of a romance is like you are you need to be partnered and that like true fulfillment comes with having a partner, Um, not necessarily a a heterosexual partner. There's tons of queer romances, which are really great, including the one I just um, recommended. But uh, that is feels kind of like a retrograde sensibility to me. And there's tons of like heteronormative tropes um, in a lot of romances. Um, And so I I don't think that you can just say that it's just because it's in a romance, it's by and for women, it's necessarily empowering women. Like some of them, I think really do kind of can push us backwards, not forwards. Um, But I will say like, I think we might be in a golden age of romance right now. And I think that there is a ton of really smart things happening like consent in these and basically all romance novels right now i i haven't seen a kind of like iffy consent situation in a maybe ever in a romance novel that i have read like they are really big on consent and on not um doing some of the kind of sketchy things that we might have been used to from from books and movies of the past um and so that stuff i think is is really progressive, but it's, you can't just assume that because you're reading a romance novel, it's going to be like good for women because it might not be. (laughs) You know, it's great to hear this romance novels. um, This sounds like they're good for the Jews, more or less, more, more than less. Tamar Fox, thanks again for being on Bonjour High. Thanks so much. It was great talking with you all. I'd love to hear what you think. Do you read Jewish romance? Do you read other genres? Let us know. Please email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and give us your thoughts. Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? 
In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit UJAIsrael75.com. That's UJAIsrael75.com. We decided to do a little bit of a news roundup uh, here. Alana, what's been on your mind? I read uh, an interesting article that really spoke to me by David Sachs. You might know him, the Canadian journalist. Uh, The article is called It's Time to Show Up and uh, came out in tablet just a couple of days ago. And the argument that he's making is that in the pandemic, so many people got used to being virtual that now people are not showing up in person and might never come back in person. And he kind of outlines all these different ways that even if you are showing up in show and you're not interested in davening, just being in that room, hearing the singing, you know, kibitzing with your friend, going to get a little l'chaim, like being in those spaces or just showing up at a Jewish deli and and bumping into someone that you went to school with and uh, going to Israel and really taking in the country. These are the ways that keep us connected. And it's definitely something that's been on my mind as someone who just started getting more observant again in my life over the past year. And I ask myself almost every week, what am I actually, why do I like going to show? What is it doing for me? And part of what I've discovered is a bit of what his argument is. Being in that space just feels like all I have to do is show up and I feel so connected to my Judaism, hearing all the sounds, um, the Hebrew, listening to the Torah portion, uh, being around other Jews. I think that is what's keeping us connected. And and his whole point is if we let that fall apart and he talks about, you know, is Mark Zuckerberg's uh kids bat mitzvah just going to be all digital because you know that's his fear and and what is that going to do that's just going to tear us apart and we're we're a lively bunch we need to argue we need to discuss and debate what do you think about that i think this is a great great point that you brought up and it's a, it's a discussion we've been having in our synagogue because there has been more of a lack of re-engagement and it's a big topic of discussion how do we get bums back in seats because at the end of the day i i think we get so much more done productively when we are sitting around staring at each other in the face rather than having it on Zoom. I'm so guilty of every time my board has had a meeting on Zoom, I'm like busy with other things. I'm trying to, you know, shoot off an email. I'm trying to read a text message. You can't do that or you could, but you'd be so insulting if you did. You cannot do that when you are sitting in front of other people having a very productive discussion I think I think we do have to start finding ways to show up again, to be in person, even if you are not totally committed to the religious aspects. I think it's such a wonderful experience for you just to be there, listen, and get out of your own headspace for 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. Avi? Um, well, you know, 
it would be an interesting article if it had actually, you know, not showed up at least almost a year ago uh, in the New York Times written by somebody else, <laughs> right? Like Tish Harrison Warren, who is a columnist for the New York Times, um, wrote something which at the time, even then, wasn't so groundbreaking, but it was the first major article that I'd seen about this, even though a lot of rabbis had been talking about this publicly um, as well as amongst ourselves. Um, and her article is why churches should drop their online services. In-person church is as essential as in-person school. And this comes from the end of January of 2022. So uh, David Sachs, great author, nice guy, good ideas, but you're a little late to the game. Um, sorry. But it's still relevant, though, because I remember the first time we, we did that episode about uh, the future of Shul, remember, uh, like last sure. last year. And I really didn't believe it at the time. And maybe it was because I was just coming back into that sphere of attending show on a more regular basis. So I was like, what do you mean? People are going to want to come back. And now that mm -hmm. I've been doing it for a year, I see it. I go to some of these big shows and they're very empty. And then there are some shows that have managed to keep a bit of a congregation going. But even then I've talked to people there and they say it's not what it used to be. David, uh, have you been reading anything interesting just to change gears a little bit? Well, you know what, Alana, I think you might find this article quite interesting and up your alley because this is by Jackie Hagdenberg from the Jerusalem Post. And the title is London Theater Group Cancels Nazi Jewish Romeo and Juliet After Wave of Criticism. So basically, Whoa, they put it, yeah, I know. They're very loaded. They, they put a post <laughs> out that they wanted that, that they were going to, you know, do this Romeo and Juliet inspired Nazi Jewish love story from a Jewish director, no doubt. They were looking for non-binary artists and those of the global majority, Black, Asian heritage. They, they seemed to have failed or forgot Wait. to put out a casting call for Jewish actors, for the Jewish I, characters. I, I do have a question. So when you say Nazi Romeo and Juliet, are Romeo and Juliet Nazis or are they living in Nazi Germany? Two different plays. Ah. You know what? It, you're you're absolutely right. It is two different plays. Now, apparently that Romeo was going to be a Nazi, uh, like a Hitler youth, and Juliet was going to be part of the Jewish oh, um, God. Jewish families. And they were going to be like, you know, these are not two households, both alike in dignity, right? There is definitely a disparity of power structure going on in this play. And it got such, there was such an uproar, there was such anger coming from it that they eventually did have to to back down and cancel the production. But it seems like is this a little too little too late? What was going on in the mind of the director to sort of put this this play on? And I know that there was a production years ago in Canada, a little bit similar where you had, I think, Israelis and Palestinians. They tried to put that together. And I don't know if it was in Toronto or Winnipeg at the Jewish theater there. I think it was a bit more successful, possibly a bit more nuanced than this production of let's have the Nazis and the Jews coming together for a, a beautiful love story. Also, it's kind of hard to humanize a Nazi. I've always thought that Romeo and Juliet would be a really good uh, backdrop for a Jewish story, but not exactly that Jewish story. Like, I always thought it'd be interesting to have like an interfaith marriage story, Romeo and Juliet style, where one, like Romeo's family is Jewish and Juliet's not, and, and they're trying to be together. That's the way that I always pictured it, I think. So yeah, I can understand why that production um, was canceled. I feel like Avi's going to disagree, though, because he always does on this topic. <laughs> 
I, I'm, I'm not going to agree or disagree because I haven't, I know nothing about this uh, play and I haven't read it. Um, what I will disagree on is the uh, automatic removal of any po- possibility to have a creative and interesting thing to say about Romeo and Juliet using Nazis and Jews. I think the problem is that people are always looking for things of like, oh, the Nazi and the Jew, that, oh, we know this story, we know bad and good, this and that, like, just come up with some new ideas. <laughs> it's like sure, every other but... <laughs> book that comes out, it's always like a Holocaust book, like, can we just do something else? Like, there are other ways to tell stories, well, and if if they wanted to tell Alana a Jewish story, they could have done it differently. Holocaust fiction. <laughs> Oh, well, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time from my sister-in-law who writes a book column for the CJN and how many books that come in are the same exact cover with the girl facing away looking at the train track. I'm not saying we need to stop Holocaust education. There's a difference, Avi. Speaking of different stories, Avi, have you been uh, dipping your toes into anything interesting? I, I, I'm reading all the time. Um, um, there's a press release that seems to have slipped many people's radars. I I haven't seen it reported most anywhere else. But then again, I haven't done a ton of digging. But Yeshiva University approves a new student club grounded in halakha to enhance support for its LGBTQ undergraduates. It will continue. The subhead is it will continue to defend against the claim that Yeshiva is not a religious institution. So I don't know if you um, know where this is coming from, but uh, the Yeshiva University is currently uh, mired in a Supreme Court debate over whether or not they have the right to ban a um, LGBTQ club from being on campus. Um, When they had a stay that said that uh, until they have a decision, they have to reinstate the uh, club, they suspended all clubs, right? Rather than allowing this one club to exist, they suspended all clubs until they can resolve the matter. Apparently, things are are moving in the right direction in terms of the the instituting back of certain clubs or or whatnot. I don't know. Um, But apparently, their way of reinstituting all the clubs and making things better is to take a club and say, we're opening a gay club, but it's just under our you know, understanding of what an LGBTQ club can and should be. Um, they, it's called the Kol Yisrael Arevim Club, and it's for LGBTQ students striving to live authentic Torah lives. Um, and um, I haven't interviewed them, uh, but I imagine that what they think of as the aims of this club would be very different from what the aims of the people who um, wanted to start a club with uh, to begin with uh, are actually aiming for. And so I found this kind of interesting that um, they're doing this. People seem to be ignoring it, maybe rightfully so, um, because the real answer is not for a school to go and say, well, you can have your club just in this way. Um, It's for them to really listen to students and say, um, how can we help you and how can we come to an, an agreement that doesn't involve us going to the Supreme Court and saying that you're basically like, you know, uh, you don't deserve to exist on our campus. That's That's been on my mind. Do you think they're at all worried about maybe a ruling not in their favor at the Supreme Court and this is why they're trying to do a bit of a mea culpa, make amends? I don't think they're trying to make amends, but I'm, I'm worried. I think they are worried about losing in the Supreme Court anyways, or hedging their bets and saying, we want to have the right to do whatever we want based on the Supreme Court ruling. Um, here is something we want to show that we actually care because they keep saying that they care. And it's interesting to hear a group, uh, a school say, we care, but you can't exist, or we care, you can't have a club, and then not do anything about it. So they clearly are trying to create some sort of a club that is um, going to band-aid over the issue. Um, and uh, yeah, let's call this Cole Yisrael Raven Club, the uh, the YU beard, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's really interesting because, I mean, I, as you know, I didn't 
attend university, but my understanding is that there is a lot of freedom usually in universities for free speech. And that's a big part of it is being able to, you know, there are some boundaries in terms of hate speech, I would imagine, but people are allowed to start like a BDS club. People are allowed to start an Israel club. People are so allowed. This is, so this feels very tightly wound from my so, understanding. So this is very different in the U.S. because um, the uh, that, that that is true, but there are different types of regulations and they want to be able to argue that they are a religious school that gets to make their own uh, decisions uh, about what goes on on, uh, on campus and uh, how they get to disperse funds to various clubs. Um, and that there is a provision to allow. It's, it's a little more complicated. It involves a lot of U.S. law. I don't want to get into it here. Um, but it, this is not a free speech issue. This is a school saying uh, we want to govern our school the way that we want to govern it. Anyway, so that's been on my mind and that's been on our minds. Up next, Aurel Goslin talks to me about Gad El-Maleh and his latest controversy. An article came out from JTA two days ago that said Gad El-Malé, popular comedian who has been source of pride for French Jews, converts to Catholicism. Um, in it, he talks about this uh, comedian who actually has deep roots in the Montreal community, um, who got a start in comedy here, who went to school here. Um, Gad El-Malé, who is very well known to you know, a lot of Jews around the world, especially in France, uh, but just as much here in, in Canada, in Montreal with the Sephardic community, um, has this film coming out next week, and it's some, somewhat autobiographical, and he talks about converting to Catholicism as part of this. He doesn't want to talk about it too much, um, but this really was the source of shock for a lot of people. With us to talk about this um, is Aurel Goslan. Aurel is the Chazan of Congregation or Shalom. He teaches at Bialik High School in Montreal. He's an up-and-coming Instagram comedian. He's been on the show before. Um, Aurel, Welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You have a relationship with or with uh, God, or you have some sort of uh, you, you've looked up to him uh, as a, as a comedian in the past. Why don't you start by telling us uh, the story of what's going on, and then we can get into your relationship. When the the story of his movie came out, we didn't know like how fictional it was. Uh, the story of the, the the conversion and everything. Uh, he was on many uh, talk shows and uh, TV and, and on radio. And they were like asking him, what do you think about like uh, Christianity? And uh, he always talked um, really freely about it and never clearly stated he he's converting or not. First of all, let's uh, make that clear. But uh, says he's really attracted to uh, a lot of the customs they have, uh, uh, really like wanting to get to know it more. And he, he feels comfortable with it and... So that's that's from where the the the, the polemic started, basically. Mm-hmm. What is um, what's the reactions you've been hearing from within the Jewish community about this story? Well, it's really like the two extremes. They completely are are mad uh, at him, disappointed at him for thinking that he he he's about to convert or he's converted or we don't even what know what to believe anymore. But from what I saw and everything that. He never uh, stated itself that he converted. And you have also the the other group that says, whatever, let him do what he wants. We respect him as a stand-up comic and his choices are, are his to do whatever he wants with his, his life. So you really, the, the, the community uh, in the world uh, and here in Montreal also is like really divided on how uh, how they should talk about this subject. Do you think it'll change if it comes out that he officially actually did convert? Yeah, at least it, it'll clear up things, you know, because now we're really, we're all confused. We don't know what's up. <laughs> I hear. Um, 
you actually just saw him and you met him for the first time uh, this week. Yes. Is that it? So he performed in exactly, Montreal. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't realize what level of performer he is uh, outside of Montreal, let's say, for the rest of Canada, how many people were at this show? For close to uh, 7,000 people. Yeah. There you go. The, so half of the Bell Center, I think. Half of the Bell Center was sold uh, out for, uh, for Gad El Malet. He probably was very, very funny. So th- has that changed your relationship with him? No, not at all. Honestly, like I said, uh, I, I respect him and I love him and I look up to him as a comedian, not uh, as uh, like uh, anything more. Yes, we're proud that he's Jewish. We're proud that he's we're proud that he's Moroccan. But I, when I when I see his stuff, I don't see the great Jew that he is. I don't see the great Moroccan that he is. I, I see the the great performer, the, the great stand up comic that he is, and uh, whether he's a Christian, Muslim, Jew, his his content for me is just amazing. So where, like, do you stand vis-a-vis the rest of the community? Is the most of the community in on one side that they say we're done with him? Is it uh, most people have no problem with uh, the direction that he's taking with his career because they don't see him as particularly like Jewish, but he's a great comedian? Um, where does most of the community stand, and where do you stand? I think the majority of the community is more on the we we don't want anything to do with him if this story is is true. That comes from the the. The, the love of the community for him. They love him so much they, that, that it hurts so much for them. And uh, the, I think the majority goes, uh, goes this, that way. So I'm, uh, I think on the, on the other side. You're, you're very much in the minority when it comes to the community. Yes, yes. It's very interesting that you say that. You know, I was talking to a colleague about this and he said that it was very similar in his mind to the fact that, uh, you know, one can easily go and say, oh, intermarriage is bad. Intermarriage is bad. We don't do this in the community until your kid gets uh, married to somebody that's not Jewish. And then all of a sudden you say, well, I still have to love him. I still have to, you know, love my love her, whoever it is. Well, you're still part of the family. We realize that there's things that are a little more important than just these laws or whatever it is. Do you see something similar about that, that because he grew up, because he has such a deep connection with the Jewish community, that it's hard to let go um, and that, you know, where if it was somebody else that uh, you might easily be able to say, I don't really care about this guy. He converts, I don't whatever. So I don't want to hear about him anymore. And that's it. Yeah, for sure. There's like a sense of pride, first of all, because he's like uh, amazing and popular and he's like really uh, uh, somebody we, we look up to for the, the, the Jewish community. But but uh, it's 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 not an easy thing to say. And like even when you think about this uh, the whole story you have to question yourself you know uh, why do i look up to him I, I i would see more as a way to like connect with others than to uh, to say that uh, that's it he he left us he he's uh, turning his back on us excellent well, you just had your premiere on stage for the first time this week. You are a great comedian and you're also a great Jewish icon, right? You're a wonderful chazan. I could tell you right now that the day you convert to Catholicism, I will stop listening to all of your jokes. You have no right to, you'll have every right to do it if you want because it's your choice, but uh, you'll stop being a good comedian in my mind. Um, but that's it. <laughs> Aurel, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Come back anytime. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. Next up, our Nachas of the Week. All right, it's time in our show for our Nachas of the Week, that thing that makes us feel newish, Jewish, Yiddish, a little happy-ish. David, what's your Nachas this week? So going on right now, starting November 5th, but ending on November 23rd, it is the 22nd annual Beth Tzedek Congregation Jewish Film Festival. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. It, it is still online this year. They did not decide that this 
community was ready to actually have in-person films. I, for one, am looking forward to the film Let It Be Morning. If you're not familiar with it, it was the Israeli 2022 Oscar submission for Best International Feature Film and winner of seven Israeli Academy Awards. I hope people in this neighborhood around Calgary can log in and join and take part and see a bunch of great Israeli and Jewish films. Amazing. Alana, what's your nachas? So normally I try to shy away from uh, shameless plugs of my column, but I happen to be very, very impressed with this young playwright, uh, Alyssa Brayson, who I actually happened to meet outside of the context of the CJN uh, for a drink a week before I found out that I was going to be interviewing her. Um, she's, uh, young. She is a graduate of Harvard and the National Theatre School's, uh, playwriting program, which it's very hard to get into the National Theatre School of Canada. So you, you put those two together and that's really impressive. So, uh, she has a play going up at the Siegel Center Studio Theater uh, that's starting very soon. I'm going to be there um, for the opening night. The play uh, is from November 13th to December 3rd. The official opening is the 15th, I believe. Um, and it's uh, a beautiful play about uh, the Jews that were imprisoned in a transit camp in Czechoslovakia um, who were forced to pretend that they were happy and go lucky and putting on art and performances for the Red Cross who was visiting. Um, and uh, I have a bunch of friends in the show. I just think that this is uh, an important time to support your local Jewish artists, especially Canadian ones. So be sure to check that out. Uh, as always, if you see Alana at a show, you're supposed to buy her a drink um, if you're hearing this because you're a fan of Bonjour Chai and that's how it works. <laughs> I won't say no to that. Um, I studied psychology uh, in university. I have a degree in psychology. I studied a lot of the uh, early history, earlier history of psychology. I was a big fan of uh, reading Freud, um, regardless of whether or not I agreed with Freud or agree with Freud. Um, I uh, was very pleased to see a song come out this week by Montreal um, singer, songwriter, all around wonderful troubadour um, called The Stages of Psychosexual Development. Ryan Stotland writes a song um, that is both very funny. Um, exactly what I needed this week. Uh, very accurate. I wish I'd had it when I was studying because it, three minutes just tells you everything you need to know about Freudian um, sexuality and, and development in general. Um, let's have a listen and go out on that note um, because it's really damn funny. All started with the neural fixation All started with your mother's breast Weaned off too late or too early Then you'll have some problems as you might have guessed Cause if you can't get over that oral phase If you can't get over that phase Then you'll end up dependent and overly passive Burden on some That is all else. for today Thank you, Alana. Thank you, David. And thank you all for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending November 12th, Shabbat Parashat Vayera. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told the friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 
Here we are at the end of the stages of psychosexual development. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.